0: So we started last week a, a series on um, our mission, what we believe, who we are as people, and who we are hoping to become. We talked about this this idea uh, that we have on our on our logo that's at the top of this sign that says that God is not hidden. This big idea is kind of the the foundation for why our church exists, because God reveals himself to people. And for those of you that are Christians this morning, he reveals himself to you and you have this opportunity to have this relationship with him. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, he is revealing himself to you in countless ways. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's waving from across the room. He's trying to get your attention God is not hidden. And so we're going to move on a little bit in this Sunday and the next two, and we're going to talk about realities about our lives as followers of Jesus. And this banner here has three things written on it. It says, we are adopted by the Father. It says, we are loyal to the Son, and it says, we are empowered by the Spirit. I'm going to talk about these three uh, realities this week, next week, and the following week. And what I want us to get our um, hearts around is the idea that these things are true for you as a follower of Jesus. If you're a Christian, these things aren't debatable. They're not opinions. They're not things that, that are up in the air. They are true, So this morning, we're going to take a look at this idea that we are adopted by the Father. And in Romans 8, we're jumping into a much larger argument that Paul is making about our salvation and about our unity in Christ. But we're just going to talk about a couple verses, starting in verse 14. We just read it. Paul says, for all those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So this idea that God is our father is what we want to kind of grapple with this morning. The Bible is constantly using language both of birth, new birth. Jesus says you must be born again. And also adoption to clue us into this reality that the kind of relationship we have with God is a family relationship. So how should we understand this? I've got three ideas about a father that I want to take a look at. The first one is a father gives his love. Now, it's, it's, it's hard, I know, for some of us who maybe, maybe we haven't had good relationships with our fathers. I know some of you in here have great relationships with your earthly father. Others of you don't. And so to immediately say that God is my father, it's just hard to wrestle with. It's hard to grapple with. But the reality is our earthly fathers are lesser examples of what our heavenly father actually is. All of our earthly fathers are broken, sinful people. Either, Even if they're great dads, they still miss the mark of the perfect father who is God. And so we're gonna take a look at God as our father, m- exemplifying what it means to be a good father. And a father gives us his love. We often think about our salvation in negative terms right? We're, we're really bad and God fixed it. You're rotten, you're wretched, you're sinful, you're broken. We're just saying about we're drowning in a sea of death and destruction and, and God swoops in and he pulls us out of the muck and the mire. And that's true, but it's incomplete, isn't it? There's this... um. Uh, how many of you guys have seen the old Superman movie with Christopher Reeves from like, what is it, 1970-something, maybe? Early 80s? I don't even remember. So Superman is this, this really great guy, right? Clark Kent's this really great guy. And he goes around and he saves people. That's kind of the gist of, of his, his uh, backstory. And there's a scene in Superman where there's these, these kids in a bus... And they've, they've kind of halfway gone off the side of this bridge. And the bus is like teetering on the side of the bridge. And all these, these kids are in there screaming. And they think they're going to fall off into the river. And Superman comes up. And he flies up. And he grabs the bumper of the bus. And he picks it up. And he pushes it back onto the bridge. And the kids are all like, it's Superman. Yay. And they're all clapping. And, and, and Superman goes, everything's going to be fine now, kids. And then he flies off. Superman's just, I mean, he's a good guy. He saves people, right? But then later on in the movie, if you've seen it, kind of the end of the movie, uh, Lois Lane is killed in an accident. And Superman shows up and he's too late. And do you remember what he does? He like lets out this blood-curdling scream that then it like zooms out to the space. Like you can hear it from space. He's just so distraught over the fact that Lois Lane is dead and he gets angry and he starts flying around the earth as fast as he possibly can. And somehow this is not how science works, but somehow it causes the earth to start spinning backwards and it starts time going backwards and, He saves Lois's life. Those two things are very different, aren't they? And I think sometimes we think God is like Superman saving the kids on the bus. It's just kind of part of his job. Like God's a, he's a good guy. He saves people. That's what he does. But we miss the reality that God's relationship with us is much closer to Clark Kent and Lois Lane, then Clark Kent and a bunch of random people. God really, really loves us. And in the cross, he goes to the ends of the earth to bring us salvation. John says in 1 John, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. And so this morning, it's, it's one thing to, to understand that that's true. But what I want us to do is I want us to be people that actually believe it. That actually understand the depth of how much God loves us. And God expresses his love for us in this idea of adoption because his love for us precedes us. Ephesians 1 says, blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. All of this work that God has done to secure our salvation takes place long before we even exist. Charles Ryrie in his systematic, commenta- or systematic theology says, adoption is possible only because of a voluntary act of the one doing the adopting. God chooses to adopt children. Now, many children, and I know some of you know this uh, really well, many children are what we would call whoopsies, right? Anybody anybody know what I'm talking about? Countless couples, couples I know, maybe maybe in this room, get surprised when they find out, oh, oh, we're pregnant, right? That's part of the joy of marriage. Up until recently, uh, the physical expression of a couple's love could result in a child really at any time. It's only the last 60 years or so that we've had technology that could reliably plan children. But adoption isn't generally like that. Uh, We adopted our youngest child, Nora, and we chose to adopt her about three years before she was born. We didn't know anything about her but we decided, we committed to loving her. Joanne and I made the decision to choose her long before she was born without knowing anything about her, the kind of person she would be. And it's kind of weird, like when you work with an organization to adopt a child, you have to fill out a lot of paperwork. It's a lot harder to adopt a child than it is to have one naturally. Um, you have, to, you have to fill out all these papers and you have to say like, do you want to adopt a boy or a girl? And, and what ethnicity are you willing to adopt? And then it gets kind of weird. It asks you like, what if the child's disabled? Are you okay adopting a, a child with Down syndrome or a cleft palate or cerebral palsy or AIDS or a blind child or a deaf child? And, and the, the weird thing is everyone I think wants a healthy baby, And the vast majority of parents, if their child is born with some deficiency or disability, they love them unconditionally because that's how being a parent works. But it's a very different feeling when you're standing in front of a sheet of paper with a bunch of checkboxes on it asking you, would you be okay if your child was like this? Would you be okay parenting a child with this Painful life circumstance, and so you you just have to make those decisions. Like well, I don't know, like would I be okay with that? I mean, if that just happened to me, I, I I think I I think God would give me the love to parent a child that way. But but now but I have a choice, right? So I can say no. I don't want to bring that kind of pain into my family. I don't I don't want to check that box. But God's adoption process is a little different because see, he doesn't, he doesn't have any unknowns in his life. He knows everything. And there were not some possible outcomes in front of him. See, in his paperwork, he had a list of names and beside those names was written all kinds of things. Angry, lustful, addicted, hateful, proud. But the thing is, is he checked all the boxes. Before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly how messed up I was going to be, and he chose to adopt me anyway. In Romans 5, Paul says, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the Father loves you, and one of the ways we know that He loves you is because He chose you knowing how broken you would be, knowing that He would have to come to save you. He wants you anyway. The Father gives His love, but He also gives His resources. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 7 Who among you, if, your, if His Son asks Him for bread, will give Him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, our father will take care of our needs. And maybe maybe he's not going to do that the way that you want him to. Jesus says, whoever asks for bread, not whoever asks for Mercedes. It's different but our father will take care of our needs. Oftentimes when you bring foster or adoptive children into your home who have been neglected, one of the things that they will do is they will hide food. They they won't eat all of their dinner. They will take some of it and put it in their pocket and sneak it off to their bedroom and they'll store it away for later. And the reason that children learn to do this is because they could not trust their old parents and so they do not trust their new parents. Jesus tells the Pharisees in John eight, you are of your father, the devil. and You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. John writes again in 1 John 5, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So the reality is, is that outside of Christ, we are under the authority of another father. We are on a different team. We belong to a different family and that father is not good. He is not kind. Jesus says that he comes to kill and steal and destroy and we have lived our lives with an old father that we could not trust. If we were going to be cared for under the tutelage of this father, we had to care for ourselves. But when we're adopted by a new father, when we are adopted by our heavenly father, what we tend to do is we bring these old habits into our new home. We sing songs on Sunday where we say we're, we're running to his arms We're confessing that you are my all in all. But then we go out and we use pornography and we cheat on our taxes and we lie to people we love about all kinds of silly things. And these things are objectively wicked and broken in our lives, but they're also examples of us hoarding food away because we don't trust that our father will meet our needs. He has has set out the rules of his home and promised to be generous and good to us. And we just aren't sure that we can trust him. In our passage in Romans this morning in verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. How many of us, belong to the household of God, our children of our heavenly father. And yet we live as though we're slaves. We live in fear. We sneak around doing things behind God's back because we just don't trust that he's going to take care of us. Church, we don't have to live that way. Our father loves us and gives us everything we need generously. You can trust him with your physical life, with your emotional life, your relational life, your spiritual life. He knows what you need. A father gives his love, he gives his resources, but he also gives his authority. Adoption is a change in legal status, it's an objective fact, and it has major consequences. Back in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, adoption was a big deal. One of the most famous adoptees in history was a guy named Octavian. See, Julius Caesar, who was the most famous person in the world, he had a child uh, with with another famous person named Cleopatra. They had a son together. But he didn't like his son. And so he found his niece's son, Octavian. He brought him into his home and he trained him up. And after Caesar was killed, it was revealed in his will that Octavian had been adopted by Julius Caesar and now was legally his son and the heir to the rule of Rome. We know Octavian now is Caesar Augustus. Octavian wasn't born a child of Caesar, but through the legal act of adoption, Caesar gave him all of the rights and the privileges and the authority of his house. And this is the primary purpose of adoption during Paul's lifetime. We live in a... um, we live in a world that's largely influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? Like there's, there's just these things that we understand are, that are right and good. And so adoption is this thing that everybody recognizes like, well, yeah, of course, there are, there are children in need and there are parents that want children. And so we're going to put those two things together and it's a good thing and it's a beautiful thing. But in ancient Rome, nobody cared about that kind of stuff. Roman society was brutal. The purpose of adoption in Paul's lifetime was to get an heir to inherit your title and your fortune. You didn't have a son and all of your money was just going to be squandered. You needed an heir. And so you would go find a family and you would buy their child off of them and you would adopt them into your family. And this thing was only really done by the wealthy because it was very expensive to do. And so then you had an heir to inherit your title and your fortune. But our adoption is a little bit different. Back in Romans 8, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Our adoption is different because one, our father's never going to die, right? We don't inherit the fortune at the death of our parent because our parent is the eternal God. And secondly, the father doesn't need an heir. He already has one, Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son and he inherits everything that belongs to his father, He is the one true son of God. But Paul tells us that we are adopted as co-heirs. Jesus is our older brother and everything due to Jesus is also given to us. In Hebrews chapter two, we read, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. He's talking about Jesus and us. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Jesus says, all of these people that you have adopted, they are my family. What do we get for that? Well, listen to Jesus' words to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery just as I have received this from my father. Jesus is given rule over the nations all throughout scripture, the Messiah, the King, he will come and he will rule and he will reign in a perfect kingdom forever and ever and ever. And Jesus says, no, all of you will get to do that with me. A little later on in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, to the person who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So as we study the scripture and we see all of the things that the father has promised to the son, Paul says, we actually get in on all of that. We are co-heirs Christ. The Father gives us his love. The Father gives us his resources and the Father gives us his authority. All of these things come through our adoption. So here's here's a question for us this morning. Church, do you believe that? Do you do you really believe that? Look back at verse 15 of Romans eight. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Our spirit and God's spirit, they testify, they confess, they say out loud. And I don't know about you, but I've read this before and thought that this is like, this is just kind of permission to call God Father. We cry, we cry out, Abba, Father. We're given the, the ability to say God is our Father, but that's not what Paul is saying. This confession by the Spirit and our Spirit is an affirmation of the reality that God is our Father. So it's one thing to read the word and and hear that, yeah, God is my father, but it's another thing entirely to actually believe it. This is the difference between living a Christian life that is filled with joy and fruitfulness and one that doesn't really ever seem to go anywhere. Henry Nouwen writes, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. So I just want to, I want to read some things. These are all statements that come from an author named Neil Anderson in his book, Victory Over the Darkness. Some of you have heard me say these things before, but if you are in Christ this morning, if you are a Christian, the first thing I want to say to you is you are accepted. You are God's child. You are Christ's friend. You have been justified. You've been united with the Lord and our one spirit with him. You have been bought with a price. You belong to God. You are a member of Christ's body. You are a saint. You have been adopted as God's child. You have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. You have been redeemed and forgiven of all your sins and you are complete in Christ. You are accepted. But secondly, you are secure You are free from condemnation. You are assured that all things work together for good. You cannot be separated from the love of God. You have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. You are a citizen of heaven. You are hidden with Christ in God. You have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And you can find grace and mercy in time of need. And thirdly, you are significant. You are the salt and light of the earth. You are a branch of the true vine. You have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. You are a personal witness of Christ. You are God's temple. You are a minister of reconciliation for God. You are God's coworker. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. You are God's workmanship. You may approach God with freedom and confidence and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Church, if you are in Christ this morning, you are accepted, you are secure, you are significant. Do you believe that? Do you, do you walk throughout your day Believing that to be true about you. Do you hear the spirit of God speaking that into your heart? Are you in the habit of telling yourself those things? If not, you should be. And it's not because it's some kind of, you know, personal affirmation therapy. You don't stand in front of the the mirror and say, I'm just just so good looking and I'm going to get that promotion. That's not what I'm talking about. These things that are true about you have nothing to do with you. They have everything to do with who you are in Christ. We are all of those things because we have been purchased by Christ and he is all of those things. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, though, that those things, those things aren't true of you. Those promises come to us as we've been adopted as children of God. But if you are not a Christian, unfortunately, the reality is is that you are still a child of the devil, captured by him, dead, blind, and lost in sin. That doesn't have to be true. The offer to be made a member of Christ's family adopted by the father is open to you. You can choose at any moment to trust in God as your father. And church, this, this reality of our adoption, it needs to go deep into our hearts. It needs to be the thing that we hold on to as we go out into the world because everything that you experience every single day is going to make you doubt those things. Does God really love me? Does God really care about me? Does my life even matter? All of those things are lies and you need to speak the truth to yourself that you have been adopted into the family of God. Real quick, I want to take a look at two other realities of adoption. The first one is that if God is our father, we are siblings. Joseph Hellerman says, Paul's point is not simply that God is now my father and I am now his son, God in Jesus' great work of redemption was not establishing a series of isolated personal relationships with his individual followers. He was creating a family of sons and daughters, siblings who are now all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. The saving work of Christ, therefore, has a corporate as well as an individual dimension. For Paul, the church is a family. Listen to what he says there. When you become a follower of Jesus, you don't become a Christian in isolation. You get adopted into a family. And so so look around the room this morning. Are these people your family? Are they the people that are closest to you? The people that you trust, the people that you lean on? And if that's not true, why is that? I'm sure we can all think of lots of reasons why it, it just doesn't make sense to have close family relationships in the church. And, and there, a lot of times there's all kinds of personal story that goes around along with being hurt and, and trust and, and fear. And, and all those things are legitimate and deserve to be talked through. But at the end of the day, what is it that is, that is at the root of you're not seeing the body of Christ as your family is it possible that for some of us, we have something that we need to deal with that is preventing us from living a life of family with the rest of the church? The second thing I want to point out, then we'll be done, is that in the family of God, we have a family coat of arms. You guys know what a coat of arms is? So like a, it's kind of a shield looking thing. And there's like a helmet on top and some little flowers and, and you put it on your your breastplate, or you put it on your flag. And it, it identifies you as the house of Adams or the house of Taft or whatever. And then you go down to Las Vegas and, and somebody says, this is the Adams family coat of arms and you can buy it for $99. And it, I have no idea, but I bought one. The coat of arms is this identifying picture of what it means to be part of a family. The coat of arms of the family of God is suffering. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children are, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. What does Paul say? Distinguishes us as God's children, suffering. Hebrews, again, chapter 12, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, if we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them, shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is not punishment. It is training. And discipline often comes through suffering. I used to I used to work at the Croc Center here in town, and there were a couple of, of personal trainers on staff. And there was Kevin. Kevin was in his like late 40s. He was, he was fit, but he wasn't that fit. Um, and he's a super fun guy, Lot, lots, of, lots of puns, uh, just a very punny guy. And everybody liked Kevin and you could train with Kevin. And if you trained with Kevin, he would show you how to exercise and, and, and how many reps to do and what machines to do, and it was great. And then there was Dale. Dale was about the same height as Kevin, about 10 years older, and Dale was just ripped. And he had uh, shoulder length, pure white hair, and his eyes glowed like fire. And if you trained with Dale, you would regret it because he was going to make sure that you got strong and it was going to suck. Because see, good training is not necessarily fun, is it? And our father is committed to us being trained and matured into the image of his son, Jesus. We are all on a trajectory of looking like Christ one day. And the primary way that God, unfortunately for many of us, for all of us, the primary way that God does that is through suffering. He is going to put things into our lives that are hard. Sometimes they're just minor inconveniences. Sometimes they're incredibly painful. And the goal of those things is to shape us into the image of Christ. Sometimes we go out and, and this happens to my wife um, more than me, but, but strangers will see our family and they will, they will look at my youngest adopted daughter and, and they will say like, oh, she looks just like her mom. And it's too complicated to even question that at that point. It's just like, thank you, and whatever. But the funny thing is, is adopted children, they start to take on the characteristics of the family that loves them, don't they? Maybe not the DNA, but the mannerisms, the values, the character. It all begins to transfer. And it's no different with God's family as we are adopted into his family and we become his children, he starts to rub off on us. A little later in Romans eight, Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God is going to make you like Jesus. And one of the primary ways he's gonna do it is by allowing suffering into your life. And I get a complaint sometimes that I I talk about suffering too much. Some people don't like it. Talk about happier things. But the reality is we're just not good at it, are we? We We are weak people. And I don't just mean us in this room but I include us in just the church in this cultural context that we find ourselves in in 2022. We are people that try to avoid any small amount of suffering that God gives to us. We refuse to be shaped by it. And many of us, we, we, Radically fear a day when we might be asked to suffer greatly. We, we read stories about, about Christians and other nations and in the past and how they suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And we think, please don't let that happen to me. <laughs> but if I let us all walk out of this building week after week thinking that nothing hard was ever going to happen to us, I've really failed you as a pastor. The reality is God loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you before you were even born, knowing everything good and bad that your entire life would have in front of it. Just so that you could be adopted as his child. And you are accepted by him. You are secure in him. And you are significant to him. And he is going to make sure that you grow into maturity that looks like Jesus. And it's going to be more like training with Dale than with Kevin. And that's a hard word to hold. God loves us so much. He's gonna allow pain to come into our lives. But that's, that's the king we follow, right? The next time you read through one of the gospels, take a look at what Jesus' life looked like. Yeah, there, there was a lot of partying. There were miracles, that's pretty fun, but there's a whole lot of pain. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And if we're going to be people that go, okay, I'll follow you, Jesus, we need to be aware of what that looks like. And when it comes, even, even just a little bit, we have an opportunity to either fear it or flinch in it or run away from it, or instead go, I praise you, God, because you care enough about me that you're shaping my heart to be like Christ. All right, that's enough. I don't have any questions on the phone. Does anybody have any, anything they want to ask or chat about? No? Okay. We're going to take communion. When you, when you take a look at the ancient world in Rome... Um, eating a meal together is a big deal. You you didn't eat with people that weren't part of your same social class. Slaves ate separately than nobles. It was a a big problem to have to share a table with someone who wasn't your equal. And so Jesus comes along and, and establishes the church. And he says, Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to get, gather together, all of you in the same room, regardless of social class, regardless of, of ethnicity or, or, or gender or, or any other thing that distinguishes you because primarily you are all brothers and sisters. And I want you to eat this meal together. And one of the major problems that the Roman world had with Christians was how quick they were to break down all of those barriers and eat together. And so when we celebrate communion, one of the many things we're celebrating is the familiness of it, right? When we we take the bread and the cup together, we remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood. But we don't do it as individuals saved by God. We do it as a people adopted into one family. And so, as we as we sing a little bit more, come up and take the elements back to your seats. Spend a few moments reflecting on what the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning. I would just encourage you think think over those statements that I that I mentioned. You are accepted. You are secure. And you are significant. This is this is the reality of your status as a child of God. I would just. I challenge you to say, do you believe it? Do you live your life in such a way that you believe that to be true? And see what God has to say. There's, we also have these rugs up front. If, if you're unaware, there's an opportunity to, to move around the space while we sing. Um, there's nothing weird or mystical about it, but sometimes the way we uh, react to God with our bodies helps us react with our souls a little bit differently. And so if you wanna come up and kneel and pray, you're welcome to do that. Um, but come up and take communion, take it back to your seat, and spend a few minutes reflecting on uh, what God has for you in this moment. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.